Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Last week we began looking into the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's ministry is pivotal in the history of the world. As The uh, gospel writer, Mark, has said, and as Jesus himself said, uh, the preaching, the heralding of John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the beginning of the gospel. And so John's message, his ministry, was preparing the way for the Messiah. How is John's ministry preparing the way for the Messiah, Jesus? Well, he came preaching... As our text says, you notice in verse 2 of Matthew 3, He came saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he administered the rite of baptism in that light. Theologically, we can say there are two absolutely essential things necessary in order for one to be a genuine Christian. And those are, a person must repent, and they must believe in Jesus only. That is called conversion, and without those two things, no one will ever enter the kingdom of God. Note last week that John's lifestyle, there mentioned in in verse 4, it said, John had a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt about his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. John's whole lifestyle was a symbol of the message that he brought. He was in the wilderness. And John's whole lifestyle was one of being separated from the world. As Jesus will later say in Matthew chapter 11, when speaking about John the Baptist, and he said, when you went out into the wilderness, what did you expect to see? Jesus said, did you expect to see a man in fine clothing? He says, those kind of men are in king's palaces. Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, you went out to see a prophet. And he said, he's greater than a prophet. And Jesus quotes Malachi, behold, my messenger that will be sent to prepare the way. 
And then he said, there is no one born of woman greater than John the Baptist. So John's outward attire, his lifestyle, in many ways was reflective of what our hearts are to be before God, separated from the world. People had to go out to the wilderness to hear him preach. And there were multitudes that went out to hear him preach. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan. And therefore, as we said earlier, God said that preaching is how God primarily advances his kingdom in this world. It's not about uh, other things. It's not elaborate programs in the church. It's not elaborate music. It's, uh, it's none of that. It's always been spirit-empowered preaching that God has brought revivals into this world. It's always been that way, and it will always continue to be that way until the end of the world. As a herald... John the Baptist paved the way for the Lord Jesus. And as he said, what was John's message? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And therefore we see that repentance is absolutely essential. But it has to be a genuine repentance. Not a spurious one. Not a hypocritical one. Not a fake one. As we're going to see in a moment, John will be uh, very blunt towards some who are coming to receive his baptism. And so he will indicate there are some who are not really repentant. Did you know that there is a false repentance? A false repentance that will do no one any good. Turn with me to the book of Hosea. One of the minor prophets. We're going to look at Hosea chapter 6, beginning at verse 1 through verse 6. Now, Hosea was sent to be a primary prophet to the northern kingdom. And this is what he says. Come. Well, this is what the people say, that is. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. But he will heal us. He has wounded us. But he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. He's going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Seems pretty good, doesn't it? For what is God's perspective? Look at verse 4 and following. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. They did not have a repentance that God acknowledged. Now turn with me to the end of Hosea, to chapter 14. 
just read nine verses, but let's read chapter 14 of Hosea. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands. For in thee the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. He, his shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree, and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. But transgressors will stumble in them. And so what we see here at the end is a great promise of God, and we're, we'll break this down uh, a little bit later. But here in chapter 14, there is a different approach of the people that God acknowledges, as opposed to what he was hearing among the people in chapter 6. As you turn back to, to Matthew, Matthew 3, we see that when the people went out, to John the Baptist, what were they doing? It says in verse 6, And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now, we have already acknowledged there can be a hypocritical type of confession. And there's a genuine type of confession. And how do you know the difference? Well, the first thing of all, there's got to be, at least minimally, there's got to be a confession of sins. Without any confession of sins, there's not going to be any salvation. I know I've told this story before, but I will continue to tell it, and it's pertinent. The first pastor, 20-some years ago, in Virginia, there was a a deacon of church whose brother-in-law... was, had left his family and living in outright sin with another woman. He wanted me to go with him to talk to him. So I went. As we talked, I inquired about it. And the thing about it was the man acknowledged that there were some problems. And as I talked to him, he wasn't denying anything. But then I asked him about, uh, we made a comment concerning various things. And he said he was a Christian. And I said, really? Well, tell me about your conversion. Well, he told me that about his conversion. He says, I walked down an aisle. I said, well, then what happened? Well, I felt forgiven. I said, did you at any point acknowledge any sins before God, confess any sins before God in that action? And he said, no. 
I kind of looked at him and I said, you just felt forgiven, right? And I said, how do you explain your lifestyle? He said, well, I know it's not the best. I said, that's to put it mildly. And he told me he did not confess anything when he thought he got saved. And I just frankly told him, you have deceived yourself. You confess nothing before God. And you're vainly hoping. He thought it was all right, and where he was going to church, they didn't seem to have a problem with that. That angered me towards the other. Assuring this man who made no confession at all. Now, what were the people doing when they went out to John the Baptist? They were confessing their sins uh, before God and were being baptized by John. There, is, there was a difference among many of those that went out to receive John's baptizing. And as we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who John sees coming to them. And if you'll notice in Matthew chapter 3, what is one of the vital elements that John the Baptist brings up? Look at verse 8. Well, let's look at verse 7 first. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Now you've got to understand something about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law. They were the kind of people... Uh, who instructed the people supposedly in the law of God. They liked to be seen on, on, on the corners with uh, their robes and in their prayers. And the Sadducees, um, the high priests, were among the, the class of, the, of the, the Sadducees, but they had problems doctrinally with the resurrection, believing there was no resurrection. Pharisees understood and thought they were of the seed of Abraham, but what does John call them? Do you think it was harsh what John said? I mean, it was pretty hard when he said, you brood of vipers. I mean, he, these are the leaders of Israel. And he calls them a children of poisonous snakes. In other words, what you do is poisonous in the lives of people. It'll be much like what Jesus will say to those later on in his ministry who said they were the children of Abraham. And Jesus says, I don't think so. Your father is the devil. But verse 8 brings out one of the key biblical elements of genuine repentance, and that is fruits of repentance. In other words, an empty, shallow Fleeting repentance will not save you. And as in Hosea 6, what was the problem? What did God say to those that came to him in the first three verses? God said, your actions are like the morning dew. Now, you've seen the morning dew, right? But within a couple hours... Where's the morning dew? It's gone, right? 
as the sun comes up, it takes it away. And what with the ground was covered with all this moisture is soon gone. And God was telling Ephraim, northern kingdom, he says, that's what your repentance is like. In fact, you're banking on it, but your repentance is like the morning dew. I had nothing to do with it. And another thing in there in Hosea 6, if you'll notice, in that passage, there was a certainty. They said just like the sun rises and the seasons can be counted on, God surely will grant repentance to us. And what the problem was there, not only uh, was it fleeting, as he said, like the morning dew, they were presuming upon God. They presumed on his goodness. But God has an accusation against them, as we're going to see. Just like John the Baptist and Jesus had serious problems with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it would be true of some that were coming to John. Not everybody that came to John uh, to be baptized uh, were genuine. Just like in the church. There's not everyone who's in the visible church is of the invisible church. There were some that may have been and were hypocritical. But one thing is for sure. If you are going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to confess your sins. But there has to be the right kind of confession of sins. And so a, a profession of faith, a profession of repentance without a changed life that is the fruit of that confession is worthless. I mean, after all, is that not what Jesus will say later on when we get to chapter 7? Jesus will say that some... People, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father. See, there's the thing. You have to do the will of my Father. There are some who call him Lord. He says, calling me Lord is not what saves you. What saves you is that you actually live under my Lordship. There is action Involved. It's not just mouthing the words. It's not like Israel who said, well, God, they presume on his goodness. You can't presume on his goodness if you live in rebellion against God. How did God respond to those in Hosea 6? Notice what he, uh, the, a word that he uses there. Loyalty. Turn, turn back and, and see what he says there, because that's important, what he said to them in Hosea 6. Hosea 6, verse 6. What does God really want? I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. There's nothing wrong. I mean, who, who, after all, commanded the burnt offerings? God. But he says, if you think by just going through the actions, that's good enough, he says, you're all. Obedience. Loyalty. Remember, that's what was said 
by Samuel to Saul, who took it upon himself uh, to administer offerings when he was told to wait for the prophet or the judge. And remember, Saul says, well, I was just, I was just doing what I thought was right. And Samuel says, it's better to obey than sacrifice. God wants loyalty. And loyalty are the fruits of a truly repentant life. So, going through external motions, sacrificing without loyalty to the covenant, without fruits of repentance, will not save anyone. Being faithful in church attendance, if that's all it is, will not save anyone. You could be the greatest singer. Uh, you could be, a person could be involved in a lot of activities. But unless there's loyalty to the covenant, it's all vain activity. And God says it's not really fruits of genuine repentance. So if there's going to be a true confession of sins as the people of God, how did it manifest itself when they were coming to John the Baptist? Well, several things. We're going to list four things in terms of what constitutes a true confession of sin. Number one, there is an awareness of sin that sin is sin and that it is serious. There's a reason why I had us read chapter 15 of the the Confession of Faith on Repentance. Remember it says there, it uses a word that we're not so used to. What is our attitude supposed to be towards our sin? To view our sins as odious. Now, what does that mean? That our sins in the nostrils of God stink. They make God sick. That's what odious means. And that we need to understand our sins before a holy God are quite serious. And therefore, if there's going to be a genuine confession of sin, there's got to be an awareness of that sin, and there has to be an awareness we really are sinners, and it is a very serious situation before a holy God. It's not like some I've heard, and I've never been encouraged among professing Christians when I've heard this several times. In the past, several years ago, I heard it with reference to what was sinful in their lives. Some of the attitudes were, were this. Well, after all, I'm not God. I'm not perfect. That was the attitude. I'm just not perfect. Well, yeah, we know you're not perfect. But guess what? God expects you to be perfect. And if you're not perfect, you're going to perish forever in your sins. Of course, the person says, well, 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 wait a minute. That's why you need a Savior who is perfect. Because you're not. But this attitude of dealing with sin in one's life as being, well, I'm not perfect, is not a good attitude at all. So a genuine awareness of sins 
is an awareness whereby we understand that our sins is a, are a great offense to a holy God. And that we really do deserve His wrath because of those sins. That's where it starts in awareness in what repentance is. You know, in Isaiah 53, it says that the Messiah was bruised and was crushed for what? Crushed for our iniquities. Not our mistakes, but our iniquities. Our sins were odious in the sight of God. And we deserved to be crushed ourselves. So instead of us being crushed, he has to crush his son. And Isaiah 53 brings it out uh, very poignantly when it says, It pleased the Father to crush the Son. Think about that. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. Because the Redeemer would have to pay the full penalty for the sins for whom the Redeemer was representing. And therefore, that's why Jesus on the cross, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is because the Father at that moment was crushing his Son so that he might bear on the cross the full weight of all of our sins. The most terrible thing about the crucifixion of of Jesus wasn't the physical aspect, which is one of the most painful ways to die. That wasn't the most terrible thing. The most terrible thing was the Son of God who walked with the Father, who always pleased the Father at that moment, experienced true hell, forsaken by God. He had to be crushed. I, you see, that's why I always have liked one of those hymns where it talks about <clears throat> Jesus bearing our sins on the cross. We have to understand the full weight of that. And so, if there's going to be a genuine confession of sins, I have to be aware of the fact I am a sinner. And aware of the fact that those sins are so bad, it crushed the Son to save me. There's a second thing about true confession or true repentance. Not only is an awareness of sins and that they are serious, but a true repentance is a turning away from specific sins. If you turn back to Hosea, look at Hosea 14 verse 3. It says, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands. Now, what do we see here in, in this example of a true repentance? 
there was, in this instance, a repudiation of trusting in foreign alliances. Because Ephraim, the northern kingdom, will begin to put its stock in Assyria and actually will want to <coughs> cater, as it were, to Assyria, which will later destroy them, by the way. But they were trusting in these alliances, looking to them, looking to these foreign powers for their deliverance. They also ran, here it was uh, Assyria. Yeah, Isaiah talks about how the people ran off to Egypt, trusting in Egypt. So here we see a repudiation of trusting in others to save you. Also, what else does that passage say? We will not ride on horses. In other words, we're not going to think that we have the ability to deliver ourselves. We see in the scriptures where God commands the people, don't trust in your chariots, don't trust in the, the, the valiant power of your young men. They won't save you. You can't save yourself. And then we see here, it says, renouncing idol worship. They acknowledged it for what it was, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. You know, Isaiah does a wonderful job, especially in Isaiah 40, bringing out how stupid uh, idol worshipers are. It says they make, you know, something, a, a, a tree that doesn't rot or a stone or something, and then they, uh, they have to carry it. And notice they have to carry it. They have to prop up the idol themselves and then bow down to it. You see, any other worship of any god besides Jehovah is the worship of a god of what? Our own imagination, right? Our own imagination. And a god of our own imagination is not going to save us. It won't. And those who repent are finally saying, nor will we ever say again, our God, to the work of our hands. We're not going to make God in our own image anymore. We'll confess how foolish that was. Turn with me to the New Testament. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And let's begin reading at verse 6 through verse 10. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. And Now watch this. How you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath 
to come. They turned from their idols to serve the living God. Mount Olympus, the mount of the mythological Greek gods, was only 50 miles from Thessalonica. Greek (coughs) paganism dominated many of those cities in Macedonia and Achaia. And what was the evidence that God had really come upon them? They repented of their idol worship. There was fruits of repentance, right? They actually turned from their idols to to do what? Serve God. They were serving paganism before. They turned to serve the true and living God through the Lord Jesus. There was genuine fruits of repentance in turning from their idols. Anyone who doesn't turn from an idol, anyone who doesn't turn from a wicked lifestyle, it doesn't matter what they say, that confession is empty. John warned the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He says, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruits of repentance, Sadducees, Pharisees. Let's see a changed life. And John knew their hearts. Jesus knew their hearts. That's why they preached the way they did. They weren't popular, to say the least, among the Pharisees or Sadducees, but they told them the truth. And so what we see here, if you turn back, if you turn back to Hosea 14, Notice verses 4 through 9, very important. Well, actually, the, uh, the last part of verse 3. Not only will we say again, we will not, uh, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands, for in thee the orphan finds what? Mercy. Mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. And then down here in verse 7, those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? And so what we see here, those who live in the shadow of the Lord God, God says, you will prosper. Sounds very familiar to Psalm 1, doesn't it? The tree planted by the waters that will uh, be green and will be constantly nourished and bearing fruit. Those who have truly repented. They do not trust in themselves. And as verse 8 says here, it is I, God speaking, it is I who look to you. And from me, God says, comes your fruit. From me comes your fruit. Fruits of repentance? That's right. 
when we have truly repented, when we have ceased to trust in ourselves, when we have uh, ceased to look into others to save us, when we're not self-righteous, and when we have divested ourselves of the gods of our own imaginations, and what do we do? We cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. Notice that's what they're doing. They cast themselves on the mercy of God, and God says, I will then cause you to prosper, and you will blossom. And the fruit that will come from you, where did it originate? God says, from me, from me. I'm a mighty cypress. I'm the one that will, will hold you up. Well, how is, how is the fruit seen? Well, in verse 9 there, Hosea says, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. Walk in what? Well, who's the them? The ways of the Lord. But transgressors will stumble in them. Those whom God has truly brought forth repentance, will walk in obedience to God. They will turn from their idols. There will be a changed life. Now, do you see why I told that man who was living in adultery and had forsaken his wife and five children, by the way, he had, and he said, well, I never confessed anything I never confessed any sins, and yet he thought he was saved, and I said, you've deceived yourself. If you think you can live this rebellious life flagrantly before the Lord God and think all is well, you are deceived, and you will perish, and you need to repent of your sins. But you see... He didn't repent because he had some tell him all was well. I I never heard whatever happened to him. And so, we see here, this brings out, this true repentance brings out a third thing about what constitutes real repentance and real confession of sins. True repentance is an appeal to the grace of God. That's true repentance. You catch that wonderful line in verse 3 of Hosea 14? It says, The orphan finds mercy. The orphan finds mercy. There's something about the scribes, uh, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees that were woefully deficient. And, and what was woefully deficient, which was the basis of John the Baptist's scathing rebuke of them, and later will be the Lord Jesus' scathing rebuke of the same people, is because they thought... All was well. Turn with me to to Luke 7. (coughs) 
Luke 7, starting in verse 27. Now, we're going to read down for a while through verse 50 because it all beautifully illustrates the point here that about true confession and real repentance. Well, let's start at verse 27 of Luke 7. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now, Jesus is speaking here, and he says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people and the tax gatherers heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she had learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of person this woman is who is touching him that she is a sinner. Stop there for a moment. The Pharisee says, Jesus, do you have any idea who this woman is in my house? She's a prostitute, Jesus. A harlot in my house. That you're letting her pour this expensive stuff all over your feet. Yes, she's crying, wiping her tears with her hair. So Jesus responds with a parable here in verse 40. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, 
but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Who is forgiven? The one who had the greatest sins is the one who is forgiven. The one who understood the depths of her sins, but who pleaded for mercy. But the, and the one who pled for mercy will find forgiveness, though her sins are great. But the self-righteous Pharisee will not be forgiven. Turn to Luke 18. Look at verse 9 through 17. Jesus tells another parable. And he also told this parable in certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax gatherer over here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying... God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He knew he was a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. But he who humbles himself shall be exalted. But Jesus doesn't end there. Verses 15 and 17. He says, and they were bringing even their babies to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. Now how... Now, by the way, the little children in the Greek are the brephos, the suckling infants, the ones that had to be carried in arms to Jesus. Those are the, the ones that Jesus is talking about. How does one receive the kingdom of God like one of those nursing infants? A child, first of all, that kind of child is completely helpless, right? Totally dependent upon its parents. 
And a child is readily and trustfully accepts a gift and is not too proud to accept virtually any gift you give it. They understand their need and they will willingly accept a gift. You know, repentance, salvation is a gift of God. And the reason we see that Jesus mentions this whole parable was that the, the publican, the tax collector, he received salvation, right? Because he understood what? The odiousness of his sin. He says, I am a sinner. He couldn't even look God, as it were, in the face. He stood a distance away. He beat his breast. There's this being overwhelmed with the, the, the gravity of his sin. And he begged for mercy. And yet the Pharisee, I mean, the, 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 uh, the lawyer here, the Pharisee, he is self-righteous. I'm not like this guy here who's over there moaning over his sin. I'm not this. I do all these, what, religious things. He was doing all these religious things. I fast twice a week. I tithe everything. I'm religious. I seek to try to pattern my life after the law of God. But Jesus said there's only one who left justified, and that was the one who begged for mercy. The one who did not think of themselves as being self-righteous. That's the point. When I cast myself on the mercy of God, I am distancing myself from any idea of self-righteousness, right? A self-righteous person doesn't beg for mercy, right? They think they are good enough already. It's only a sinner who understands their sin begs for mercy. So entering the kingdom of heaven is paved by repentance. It's pleading for mercy and it is a turning to Jesus. Now, Turn over to the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 19, verse 4. Now, notice that he's talking about the baptism of John the Baptist here. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. I hope you're getting a picture of what the ministry of John the Baptist really was. Why he was paving the way for the Messiah. He was paving the way for the Messiah, and John's baptism was what? Telling the people, you've got to have a heart of repentance to receive him whom I'm unworthy to even loosen his sandals. John's baptism of repentance was an encouragement to the people to follow Jesus. And later on, we're going to see, John was not out for any self-glory. John the Baptist, once he baptizes Jesus, we're going to see. John says, I must decrease, and he, Jesus, must increase. He understood he must fade into the into the past, as it were, out of sight. 
He prepared the way, and when the one whom he was preparing came, his ministry was over. And it's no surprise that he will lose his head, and he will die. The Lord will take him to glory. His ministry was over. The Messiah had come. And his baptism prepared the way for people to trust in Jesus. So, to believe in Jesus means that we don't trust in ourselves to justify ourselves. Believing in Jesus means that we cast ourselves upon the mercy of God, of Jesus, to save us. That's what believing in Jesus is. So, when John the Baptist saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, he was rather blunt to them. Who warns you, of all people, to flee from the wrath? You notice later we looked at the passage where it says they didn't didn't submit to John's baptism. John understood their real heart. Now, what were the Pharisees trusting in? Well, we know from the Scriptures they were self-righteous. They were seeking to pursue righteousness after the law. The Apostle Paul, himself a Pharisee, right, understood the mindset of the Pharisees. He thought he was the greatest of them all, right? He was pursuing righteousness on his own terms. And he says, not only are they seeking righteousness on uh by pursuing righteousness, by thinking they can keep the law themselves, they were also adding the traditions of men to this to complicate it. And what did Jesus say about the Pharisees? They love to be seen on the corners praying. Oh, how pious the Pharisees are. It says they like to be seen in their robes. You know, they set themselves apart. They like to be seen as separate from all the people. More holy than all the other people. And that's why John says, you have no part of the kingdom of God with that kind of attitude. None. The Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied divine decrees. That was part of their beliefs. They disagreed. They often got into fights. But one thing they did agree upon, they both thought of themselves as self-righteous people And they both hated Jesus. And there was no way they were going to confess any sins, because if you don't think you are a sinner, why are you going to confess anything? There's no casting yourself on the mercy of God because you don't think you need to. A true confession of sins, then, fourthly, involves... Fruits of repentance. John told the self-righteous men there that they must bear the fruits of repentance. Look over at Acts 26. Look at verse 20. This was the, the mission of the Apostle Paul. Let's go to verse 19. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, 
performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So, now these Pharisees and these Sadducees, remember what they said to, uh, to John the Baptist? Hey, or, or John said this, he, he understood their thinking, he says, don't think by virtue of the fact that you are sons of Abraham, that means anything. We'll discuss that in a moment. But here it is, these people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were self-righteous and they were trusting in external privileges by being in the covenant of God. They were trusting in that. That's why they said to John, why John says to them, don't think that because you call yourself sons of Abraham, that's going to do you any good. Jesus later will say to, to those who believed on him, don't think that by calling yourself a descendant of Abraham will save you. No, actually, you're the son of the devil, not of Abraham. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, here's one of the things that the Pharisees, this is evident of, of, of how they thought. Let's begin at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you Judah who enter by the gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. He could have just said repent, but he said, I mean, he said amend your ways. That is repentance. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Say, amend your ways. Bring forth fruit. Quit being a thief, a murderer, an adulterer, an idolater. And quit coming to my temple and saying, we're in the temple of the Lord, we're in the temple of the Lord, we're in the temple of the Lord. As if being in the temple is going to save you. You know, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, we'll turn over to Matthew 23. Look at verses 23 through 26. Matthew 23, 23 through 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, 
have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. And so they were being religious, right? But they neglected the weightier matters of the law, the real essence of the law, justice, mercy, love. It's important when we hear the right things that we do the right things. James calls it, don't be just hearers of the word, but be you doers of the word. Turn with me to Ezekiel 33. is a great passage in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33, beginning at verse 30 through verse 33. But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his own brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. And behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So when it comes to pass, as surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. I think I mentioned to you before the greatest church sign I've ever seen (laughs) was in Houston, Texas at the Presbyterian Church. Went there for a conference. On the front of the church, facing the street, it says, I think it says Covenant Presbyterian Church. As you come out of the sanctuary, on the back side, it has, be you doers of the word and not hearers only. I said, the minute I saw that, I went to one of the elders. I said, that is the greatest sign I have ever seen. Does your congregation do that? They hear the word, but do you do it? Are there fruits of repentance, in other words? See, outward show of religion can't save anybody. Having Christian parents won't save anyone. I think Joe Moorcraft once said, he talked to a guy, he says, are you a Christian? He says, no, but my great-granddaddy was a preacher. <laughs> the guy was serious. It doesn't matter to Christians are they one of the most godly parents. I'm the son and daughter of a preacher, so? So? In Matthew 3, 9, John says to those Pharisees and Sadducees, don't think we can say Abraham is our father. Now here is something most interesting. John, the scripture says, baptized at a place on the Jordan River 
that by tradition was called Beth Abelah. Beth Abelah, and some translations say Bethany, but it's not the Bethany of the village where Lazarus lived. But Beth Abelah was known as the house of passage where the children of Israel under Joshua crossed the Jordan River when God parted the river, just like he did the Red Sea. And when he parted the waters, what Joshua did, he had them gather 12 stones in the middle of the water, a stone for every tribe of Israel, and then they carried 12 stones elsewhere and set them up. And it's read Joshua, all I'll do is read Joshua 4, 20 and following for you. Here's what it says, starting at verse 20 in Joshua 4. And those twelve stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. John, we don't know today where that is. But he gathered at the place nearby where Israel, a thousand years or more earlier, had crossed. So, when those Pharisees say, we are the children of Abraham, when John turns says, no, God can even use these stones and can raise up out of these stones children of Abraham. He has a real meaning to those stones doesn't it? The hand of God that was mighty to open those waters to let Israel cross a miracle of God. The same mighty God, John the Baptist says, can take a person who knows nothing of God, a stone, and raise them up to be children of Abraham. And he will do so. He will do so with the Gentiles who did not have any knowledge. So don't say, oh, we are privileged to be children of Abraham. No, it takes a power of God to work in your heart to bring you into the kingdom of God, of which my baptism is preparing the way for you. And then look at Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12. John says, well, first of all, in John 10, 3.10, he says to the Pharisees who claim that their external privilege meant something, John says, no, God has an axe laid at the root of the tree, and he's ready to cut and hew down this tree and then cast it into the fire. Now, who do you think he was talking about? That, that tree. Then, any self-righteous person who thinks they don't need 
to run to the mercy of God. God is ready to lay an axe to the root of that tree and throw it into the fire. And then John says in verse 11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, as important as John's baptism was, his baptism, there's a great difference between what he was doing and what the Messiah was going to do. John says, I'm not even worthy to unlatch Jesus' sandals. My ministry is nothing compared to his. All John can do is administer the sign of the covenant, water. But only the Messiah, Jesus, can bestow the thing signified. Real forgiveness. Real salvation. John's baptism was important, but he just administered the sign. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I am nothing compared to him. If you turn to Acts chapter 1, I know the hour is late. Bear with me. I almost thought about making these two sermons. But decided not to because you can handle it. (laughs) Bear with me, please. Acts 1.5. Jesus, Jesus has been raised, but it's right before, his, I mean, right before his ascension, okay? And notice what Jesus says in verse 5, Acts 1. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Wow, now, what, what days is he referring to? We'll turn over a chapter and you'll find out. Look at Acts 2, verses 30. Well, in Acts 2, they are bat- what happened to the, the, the believers? They were baptized with what? The Spirit who came upon them, and they spoke in other tongues, and all these dialects heard the gospel preached through them. And and Peter preaches this great sermon. And what was the impact of that sermon, which was preaching, by the way? Look at verse 37 to 39. tells you everything you need to know. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What's true about them? First of all, pierced to the heart. They were convicted by Peter's sermon that they had contributed to the death of Jesus. Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that Jesus had said in John, in fact, In John 7, that he who believes in me from his innermost beings shall flow waters of life. Turn over to Acts 11, since you're in the book of Acts. Look at Acts 11. 
and look at verse 11 through verse 18. Now, you understand the context. Peter is, is in talking in Jerusalem, and they're, they're wondering about uh, what had just happened with Peter in Cornelius' household and how to deal with it. And Peter then enlightens us. Look at Acts 11, verses 11 through 18. And behold, at the moment... Now, Peter's relating the story, being in his house. Three men appeared before the house in which they were sitting, having them sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. And these six brethren also went with me and entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angels standing in his house, saying... Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here, and he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And look at verse 16. And I remembered the word the Lord used to say, John baptized with water. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Several other passages. Now, John the Baptist says, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So we'll conclude with what it means for Jesus to baptize with fire. <clears throat> Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3 and look at verses 1 through 3. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand with when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. It's talking about John the Baptist, but then talked about Jesus. Look at Malachi 4. Look at Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evil, every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you will tread down the wicked, and they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. John said, you turn back to Matthew 3. 
John said in verse 12, When he, that is Jesus, baptizes you with the Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Brethren, the visible church is Christ's floor. And it, on that floor, it's mixed with wheat and chaff. And Jesus takes the wintering fork, shovels it up, throws it up, and when he does that, the wheat being heavier, being of substance, falls to the floor, and the chaff, which is empty, useless, Worthless is blown away. He will gather up the wheat into his barn, and he will gather up the chaff and throw it into the furnace, and it will burn with unquenchable fire. Two last passages. Turn to Mark 9. Mark nine forty three to forty nine. You know Jesus spoke more about hell than even about <clears throat> some other things. Look at verse forty three to verse forty nine. Jesus is speaking. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into the hell into the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter the lane than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If the eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus, in Matthew 10:28, he says, Do not fear him who can kill only the body. But fear him who can kill both the body and the soul. Referring to God. As I conclude, John's baptism was one of repentance. He declared, repent for the kingdom of God, heaven is at hand. I'm the messenger. I'm preparing the way. And when you come before me and confess your sins... You are preparing your heart for the Messiah and a repentance that will surely save you. I can't save you, but the Messiah, of whom I'm heralding his way, will save you. He will baptize you with the Spirit. He will baptize people with fire. He will determine the wheat from the chaff. And if you are the wheat, then you will confess your sins. 
you will see your sins as odious in the sight of a holy God, and you will turn from those sins. You will bear fruit of repentance. You will beg for mercy, and you will find mercy. But if you're self-righteous, if you think you don't need a Savior, if you think others can help you out, then you are really the chaff. And Jesus will burn you up in an eternal hell. To be a Christian, you have to repent of your sins. And if you really have repented, your your life, though it won't be perfect, it will be marked by holiness of life. It will be. Let's pray.